My name is Samuel J. Bice. I lived in Rapid City, South Dakota on the evening of June 9th, 1972, when the Rapid City flood occurred. We lived in Braeburn Edition, which is south of the fish hatchery. It was a normal evening. My, my folks had gone out to dinner and had not returned home. And I was working at the Swiss Chalet Motel, which was a small motel in our neighborhood. It had been there for many years. And uh, we had a policeman come by about 9 o'clock. And he said, you got to get out of here. There's a wall of water coming. He was very excited. And I kind of went, well, okay, what? It was just very confusing to me as a 17-year-old boy. It just didn't really gel. And I told my boss, I, I had been working the desk for a while that evening because he was out. And my boss was Bernie Harms. And, and so I told Bernie, I'm going home. My folks aren't home. And I have a brother who has Asperger's. And so Dave was home alone. It was only half a block down the street. So I walked down back to the house and I told my brother, I said, well, there's something going on. I'm not sure what. And, and I said, you know, you might want to pack a suitcase, Dave, and put some clothes in it. Dave was very, very concise. So he went and got a suitcase out of the bas basement and packed some clothes. And we were sitting there. And, and uh, my folks got home about 9.30, along 9.30, maybe quarter of 10. And they'd been down talking to the neighbors and along the creek there. And everybody's going, well, I don't think it's going to be that bad. And, about the time they got home, I went down the basement, and our basement was starting to flood. There's water coming up in the basement. There's about an inch of water everywhere. They just put sanitary sewer in our neighborhood, and my dad was very unhappy. So he's down, and he, he goes down the basement. He's trying to pound rags in the drain to stop the flooding coming up out of the thing. And the next thing, I, know, I walked into the living room, and I turned on the radio. My folks had a big console stereo radio, and I had it tuned. I can't remember the station. It was the rock station. It was KKLS. And it later flooded that night. It was down right across from Bacon Park. I don't remember the name of the building, but it, it was in the basement of the building. It flooded. It was dead after a while. Anyway, the announcer came on, and he was panicked. The guy was just panicked. And it got my attention. He says, if you live anywhere near them, and he was using words he shouldn't be using on the radio, get the hell out of there. I walked back down the stairs, and by that time, the water was boiling out of the floor drain about two feet high. And I told my dad, I said, we got to get out of here. Ah, I got to get this. I'll get this problem fixed and we'll go. Well, my mother went down and talked to him. And I finally said, it's time to go. Dad, we got to leave. Well, I'll, you guys go ahead. I said, no, we got to go. Everybody's got to go. So he said, okay. He came up the stairs and I went out and got, my mother had a Ford Mustang, a 74 Mustang. My brother got in the Bronco and I backed out of the driveway into the street. And my brother was ahead of me. And I remember water came over everything there was about two inches of water everywhere suddenly it just it just appeared and the approach to highway 44 was was one house up from us you came out you went up the dog park is there now and so i got on the approach and i stopped and i just happened to look back and my mother had a brand new thunderbird and she was trying to back it out of the driveway and it was a float and her wheels because our driveway was a little lower than the street and i finally saw the wheels must have caught it must have sunk enough. She must have had the, the pedal to the metal, apparently, because it caught and it went clear out in the neighbor's yard. And all I could think of was, oh, my, Keith Moore's going to have a fit tire tracks in his yard. And she came up the street behind me and, and we turned out onto 44 and headed into town. Well, we were all three kind of together. I was in the middle. My brother was ahead. I could see my mom's headlights. We got to the bridge coming out of Claiborne Canyon and the water was hitting the bridge and arcing over the road. And it was probably 45, 50 feet high. And I'm going, this is not good. 
we're in trouble. But we got through there, and as far as I know, we were about the last people that crossed that bridge. Well, we drove into town and went to Ralph Taylor's house, who's my dad's business partner, and we had no idea. My father, we didn't see him till about three o'clock in the morning. He showed up. So we had no idea where he was, but he called Taylor's about 12 at night and got through and told us he was all right. Don't worry about it. I'm fine. I'll talk to you later. Well, when he came to Taylor's that morning, I, I woke up. I heard his voice and uh, I was in the living room asleep. And in the, in the time from, I, I really don't have a lot of recollection from the time we got to the Taylor residence till the time dad got there. But I do remember Randy Taylor had a girlfriend. His, her name was Marcia Savio and they'd been out on a date. Well, he tried to take Marcia home. He couldn't get her home. There was some flooding going on at that time. So he decided about maybe 11 o'clock, 11.30, Marcia's, we couldn't get through to Marcia's parents. He knew they were worried. You know, I got to get her home. You want to ride along? We took, we had a one-ton diesel pickup. And at that time, they didn't make diesel pickups. You had to build one. And my dad and his business partner had this pickup built. And so Randy and I got in the diesel pickup. We turned onto Canyon Lake Drive and we went down Canyon Lake Drive to where Canyon Lake and Jackson Boulevard joined there. And there's a wall that used to go around the top. There's still part of it there, all the way around the top of Canyon Lake. It was a fieldstone wall. And I remember as we drove up there, they had lights there, but our lights hit. The water was hitting that wall and going way up in the air. I don't know how far up in the air. We went, oh, I can't remember at that point. That's where kind of my recollection fails because... I know Randy, I think he tried to take Marsha home later in the night and he couldn't get her home, but I think they made him haul a body or we had to haul the body to someplace. And I don't remember. And, and that's, my recollection fails me there because I don't know whether I was with him when that happened. You know, things kind of get commingled. But after that, my dad got there and he told us, he said, look, our house is gone, but he said, you can't look back. You can only look forward from this point on. And I'm going, well, what's he talking about? You know, I can't conceptualize the house being gone. So the next morning at 5.30, we get in the pickup and we drive back out to the to Braeburn Edition. It's very misty. There's kind of fog hanging low and it's just utter devastation. There's huge piles of debris everywhere. Our house is gone. Rouse's house is gone. Caldwell's house is gone. Gall's house is gone. Thomas's house is gone. And Corwin's house, They're, they don't even exist. There's just foundations there. And so we're looking around and, and it's just utter devastation. Kind of the next thing that happens is we're looking in the yard and there's all this debris and stuff and there's all these firearms laying in our yard. So I picked them all up. Well, my dad's best friend was Glenn Best, who was the county sheriff. So dad says, you have to give those to Glenn, but pick them up, get them in the car so they don't get pilfered. And we picked up a lot of other stuff and, and a few of our neighbors showed up and, and we're kind of, everybody's going, where is everybody? Where is everybody? Well, I had had a paper route in Braeburn Edition and my paper route went from Braeburn Edition all the way to the opening of, uh, not Dark Canyon, how would they call it? The next one up. And I had Flags Trailer Court, which was along the creek there, and I had uh, up the hill. I only had 55 customers, but I knew everybody because I'd had it quite a while. And in the end, we lost Hogan's. There was two people died in that household. Mrs. Taylor passed away. She, she, they watched, my dad watched her trailer go. Then at Corwin's, Mead was the only one out of, there was his wife and his daughter were there. They, they both died. 
Gaul's house, there was Norval Gaul and his wife and his mother and father and his sister and two kids. They all died. Then he went up to Caldwell's house. Caldwell's both passed away. They, they were both washed away in the flood. And then there was another house back in a little, little kind of an alcove back there all by itself. It had been there forever. And I believe and the lady's name was Mary Hyde. And she survived the flood because of the shrubbery around the house, the big trees and stuff. But she passed away in the hospital a couple of days later. So I don't know if she was ever counted as a flood victim. She should be if she isn't. I, I tried to find her name in the, in the list yesterday, and I, I didn't have enough time to look for it. But there, there was 17 people right within a one block area. And we were extremely fortunate. The people that lived next to us, Rouse, were camping. They would have been gone. The people on the other side of us, Watsons, my dad was on his way out of the neighborhood, and they were standing looking out the window. They were an elderly couple. He went and pulled them out and got them out. Thomases, there was three Thomases that died. Jack Sr., Jack Jr., and Gene all, all passed away. They didn't get out. It was too late. Their daughter, Marnie, got out. She was the only one that got out of their family. There was a lot of people died in this small area. I did see some bodies. I'm not going to go very far with that because it's very, uh, it's, it's kind of an emotional thing. But the next day was probably the most interesting day after the flood because, number one, the, the uh, National Guard was here on maneuvers. And they, they appeared. They went to work. And they never quit working all summer, which was probably the salvation for the city in the fact that they had all this free labor and heavy equipment that did a lot of stuff that wouldn't ever have, that would have taken a lot longer to do. And then the Air Force was there immediately. They had these inoculation teams. They were the airless shots, so they were just piffing, piffing. But they, they did a very good job. You saw a lot of strange things. There was a telephone pole, a utility pole, I should say, right in front of the Swiss Relay Motel on a corner. Literally about head level, there was a two-by-four driven through the damn thing. There was about a foot of it hanging out one end that was broke off, and the other end was about three feet long and there was nails sticking out of it. So it had been ripped out of a, a structure and had been driven through that. And the power of the water was just incredible. Dr. Guybe, who lived up about a block up the street, had bought a brand new Continental. And I remember he was very proud because I don't think he'd ever bought a new car. I'm not sure he ever bought a new car, but he had this brand new Lincoln Continental. And there was this ball Right by the Swiss Chalet Motel, there was a playground. Motel had a little playground there. And there was this thing sitting in the middle of the playground. And about four or five days after the flood, I got to look at it, and it's got four tires and a license plate. It was Dr. Geib's Lincoln Continental, and it was in a ball, about a six-foot ball. There was nothing left. I really wouldn't have recognized it except the color of the paint, and there was a Lincoln badge on the side of the car. And they just put in all this sanitary sewer, like I said, and... The street ran parallel in front of the neighbor's house around the corner from us with the sanitary sewer ran parallel with the flow of the water. Well, it washed all the water out of the ditch and exposed the pipes. They were just laying there open, which, you know, I'm kind of going, well, that was interesting. But sitting right on the edge of the excavation where the excavation would have been is a box. And it's, it's a very beautiful wooden box. So I reached down, I flipped it open. It was somebody's silver service. Picked it up put it in the, in the back of the Bronco, and it went to the Sheriff's Department. But the second day we were after the flood, my folks went and they had a water well drilling company, and they had a bobcat. So my dad, all that was left was our basement. So he said, I wonder if there's anything down there. So he went and got a bobcat and a boom truck, and they boomed the bobcat 
into the basement of the house and started unloading everything out of the, well, my folks had a safe. And so they found it. It was down there. Well, it had all the titles to all the company vehicles, and it had all these important birth certificates, all that kind of stuff. Well, they get it out, and my mom opens it. They had some cash in there. So she's got a little pan of water, and she's washing $100 bills in this little pan of water. And a colonel from the guard came by and goes, well, that's interesting. (laughs) And it was just odd things like that. And then because I'd been the paper boy, this colonel from the guard found out that I had delivered papers all over the neighborhood. Well, he'd bring me stuff. He'd come find me and said, do you know who this belongs to? And do you know who this belongs to? Because there would be names. I said, yeah, okay, they're alive. Because by that, at that point, we kind of knew who was gone. And I mean, it wasn't long. You kind of figured out that these people are not coming back. You know, they might not find them for a while, but they're not coming back because those houses are gone and nobody's, nobody's heard or seen or there's nothing been heard from them. And I can always remember it might have been two or three days into the cleanup efforts. He rolls up in this Jeep with this guy and, and he walks over and he's got a big satchel, kind of a big plastic satchel. And he zips it open and he pulls out this name. The name is Peterson. He says, do you know where this guy lives? I said, yeah, I do. And I just happened to get a glimpse in the satchel. It was cash. <laughs> and he zips it shut. I said, you go right up here and on the other side of Flag's trailer court, there's a bunch of new condominiums in there. The first one in is Peterson's. Interestingly enough, we ended up staying with a, with a friend of my father's. My folks had a camper, and it did not get destroyed in the flood. It was at our office, which is adjacent to Rapid Creek on the, on the other end of town, but the water went to the south of our office. It came right up to the, to the bottom edge of the building and went south. So we really didn't have any loss there, thank goodness, because that was if they would have lost their business, I don't know what they would have done because that kind of fueled, the, it was the engine that fueled everything after the flood for us. We went to Irvin Isla Cannons. Well, Isla Cannon, and I didn't know this, I'm 17 years old, I didn't pay attention to what my friends and their spouses' parents did, you know, for a living. Well, Isla Cannon was the director of civil defense. Well, her son, Mark, was a year behind me in school, and Irv was in the Air Force, and my folks stayed in the house, and they put the camper out beside their house, and Irv fixed up an outside shower for my brother and I and, and all these amenities, and that's where we stayed for the summer. One night, Mark and I were grousing because we couldn't go anywhere. 10 o'clock curfew. You, you're done. You, you have to be home. So Isla says, I tell you what, I will give you boys passes, but if you make any mistakes, I will throw you under the bus. So Mark and I were probably the only two teenagers in Rapid City that had legitimate passes to go anywhere, anytime. We did not abuse them. We were smart enough not to do that. But one thing we did do, we went down to my dad's office the next day and got a couple spare hard hats. And everywhere we go, we put the hard hats on. When we come to the checkpoints, we show them our passes. And some of the sheriff's deputies looked at us really funny. Like, where in the hell did you get? You know, nobody can get these passes. So we had an interesting time because we could go anywhere till they quit the curfew. We didn't have to be in a tent, and we were responsible. The Salvation Army came in. They were wonderful. They had The Salvation Army trucks were there every day, all day long, and they fed you if you wanted cigarettes, if you wanted anything. They had it. I was impressed with the Salvation Army because they served good food, and they were very helpful. And, you know, the, the National Guard and the, even the, the city itself— People responded as a city, not as just individuals. They all, everybody chipped in. Everybody went to work. 
strange part was you were never given time to mourn anybody. Those burials were all done. I mean, if you were the next to kin, you were there probably, but you know, we never, we all didn't get to go to the, any of the burials of anybody. In fact, to this day, I don't know where in the cemeteries these people are buried. Things moved very rapidly. I can remember driving from Ralph Taylor's house out to Braeburn and then driving back when you reached about Park Drive, the houses were in the street. There was houses washed into Jackson Boulevard. When you got down around Rice Cycle, there was trailer houses across Omaha. The bridges, every bridge in town was packed full of debris, just mountains of debris, trees, brush, roofs, furniture, cars. I worked on a survey crew, and, and at, the, at the very end of my summer, I got to come back to Rapid and work here in Rapid on the survey crew, and we were doing the high watermark surveys in Claiborne Canyon, and we were right down by, by the bridge where I, at the mouth of Claiborne Canyon, and there was an excavator working down around the bridge, and I'm out on the rod, and the other guys, are they've got the transit set up, and, and uh, Wally Beetle was my boss at that time, and well, the transit was clo- a lot closer to the bridge than I was. I was quite a ways from the bridge. I was probably 300 yards from the bridge, and we just started doing the survey work in there. And the excavator, all of a sudden there's this flash and this huge boom, and there was a car that had been crushed and forced under the piling of the bridge, and he hit the gas tank with the hoe bucket, and it blew up. And I believe they found a missing body in and some of the last bodies that were found were the Gall family from up in our neighborhood. And I think they found them when they were cleaning out one of the last of the fish hatchery ponds. They used to have, at the fish hatchery, they had these old limestone lined ponds. And I think they all were tore out sometime after the flood. They, they decided to update the whole thing. And when they did that, they found the, the remnants of the Gall family. Our house... We found a piece of siding, a piece of carpet, and one dining room chair. That was the sum total of everything we found from our house. And I, I can remember Mead Corwin was our neighbor, and he was the only survivor in his family. And uh, we saw Mead a couple days after, about three or four days after the flood, we saw Mead, and he was walking around. He no glasses. Well, his son was Bert Corwin, and Bert had, he was an optometrist, and I, I think there was a, I think his office might have got flooded, so he couldn't get glasses for his dad right away. And, and Mead was telling us, he said, well, you know, I had a spare pair of glasses in the glove box of my sob. So he told us that, and I said, well, you know, it, it couldn't have gone that far, Mead. I, I said, I don't think that car's that far. So my buddy, one of my friends, I, think it was, I believe it was Mark Cannon was with me, and we took off looking for this car. Well, we got to Canyon Lake Park, and we found the car. Here the car is pushed up against a tree in Canyon Lake Park, and one of the one of the National Guard guys says, "You guys, you guys don't need to be here." And he was trying; he was going to run us out. I said, "Look, we're looking for this blue Sab car, and I think it's right over there." I, I, as I see it, we're going to look in the glove box because he's missing his glasses. Okay, go look in the glove. Well, sure enough, the glasses were still in the glove box. There was no windows in the car; it was a mess, but the glasses were in the glove box. So we, I took the glasses and. You know, I didn't see Mead a lot after the flood, but every time I did see him, he thanked me for finding these glasses. Little weird, strange things you find. We found all these firearms in our front yard, and there was a big wooden box that was broke open, and apparently it floated down and hit something and broke there. So we hauled them off, but there was one gun in there. It was a Colt single-action 22, 
and I cleaned it all up. And that's the only one I touched. I, I, the rest of them went right to the sheriff's barn, but I cleaned that one all and cleaned the holster. And I had eyes. I thought, I'm keeping this. Well, my dad, you can't keep that. That belongs to somebody. So I had to turn it into Glenn Best. And I can remember very clearly, it was about four or five days after that, one of my customers in Flag's Trailer Court came and found me. It was his gun. It was his trapping gun. And he figured it had been lost forever. And he was so happy. I used to see Clarence every once in a while. And he said, I still got that gun. And then the smells. You know, he had all these freezers and refrigerators that were storing food. And all that food had been pushed out of there. And it, it was everywhere. And the smell was pretty incredible at times. You know, you they'd be cleaning out something. And they'd hit a pocket of that, of foodstuffs or whatever, spoiled meat and stuff. And you never forget, the, the one smell you never forget is the smell of the human body. And one night we were talking, and my wife said, I'm sure you had PTSD after that. And I said, well, you know, they talk a lot about PTSD. And when you're 17, you don't really understand that or realize what it is. And I said, I know now I had it because every time it thundered for about three years, I was kind of a basket case. I'm running for cover. I was looking for shelter. What's the highest point I can get to? And it, it never dawned on me till after I'd been married quite a while and, and we discussed it a couple of times. You know, that's the truth. That's what was going on. You know, and, and those kind of things you don't think about. At the time, you don't think about them. After they've happened, you don't think about it. But today I can look in retrospect and we are so lucky. My family is so fortunate we got out when we did. You know, 60 seconds can make a huge difference. Whether you call it the luck of the draw or the cards or when God pulls your card, it's time. People don't have much respect for the power of water. If water's over a foot deep running across the road, don't drive through it. Do not drive through it. Yeah, I mean, it's a very, very powerful force of nature. And, you know, Mother Nature can turn on us in a second. And that night she did.